Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Greenhouse Lasses. Today, we have Virginia Palacios with us. She's a 10th generation Tejana from Laredo, Texas, on the US Mexican border, and is an independent environmental science and policy consultant. I met Virginia at an energy efficiency conference and was later recruited for the new Leaders Council Austin Fellowship Program. Virginia was a data and policy analyst at Environmental Defense Fund for five years and was a state and local policy manager at a regional energy efficiency organization in Texas before moving on to become an independent consultant. Virginia's goal is to make environmental science more understandable and actionable for policymakers and advocates. She's got a bachelor's in aeronautical science and was an airplane pilot, super freaking cool. And she has a master's in environmental management from Duke. So basically, she's a total badass and we are super excited to have her with us today. When you can't sleep at night cause everything freaking sucks Like all the racism and the sexism The LGBTQ phobiaism And oh my god, it all makes me wanna explode So here's Greenhouse Lasses Your Greenhouse Lasses Here to find a way It's Greenhouse lasses, those greenhouse lasses trying to save the day. Welcome, Virginia. <laughs> Thanks. Y'all are very gracious. I appreciate it. Yay. <laughs> um, so I want to go back and unpack uh, something that we said, which is that you're a 10th generation Tejana. So um, let's unpack that a little bit and talk about what exactly that means. <laughs> sure. Um, so Tejano or Tejana is an ethnicity that um, I think a lot of people don't know about outside of the state of Texas. Um, and it basically just means that um, I'm a Hispanic Latina person uh, from Texas. Um, and essentially, it's kind of like being a mixture of both indigenous and indigenous person from Texas, but also um, all these other people who have kind of like come to the region over the years, like the Spanish, um, the French, uh, the Polish. So there, there have been a lot of different influences in Texas um, over the years. A lot of people know that there were like six flags over Texas at one point in time. Laredo as a city is kind of unique in that there were seven flags over it because Laredo was once its own republic um, a while back. And so um, being Tejana is just like, it just kind of means that you're mixed and you you have all kinds of uh, different influences in your culture. Um, but it's also kind of an interesting place to be from um, as a person who considers himself to be Mexican, but has never actually like been of Mexican nationality. Um, so like this, this land of South Texas where I'm from uh, was uh, Texas and then it was Mexico um, and then it kind of became Texas and then it became the United States. And so it's just been all of these different things. Um, and it's, I think there's this kind of saying like we never crossed the border, the border crossed us. Um, and people use that to mean all different kinds of things, but it's like, uh, it's just kind of funny because it's like my ancestors have been in the same place for so long and, and I'm a product of that. Um, but yeah, you know, I, my dad was really into genealogy and uh, he traced our ancestry back to some of the founders of Laredo, 
um, which dates back to 1755, so before the U.S. was a thing, right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's really cool to have that family history. Um, and I'm just really proud to be back down there now and uh, working on, hoping to work on more community issues down there. Awesome. Yeah, that's, um, I didn't know that about Laredo. So I think <laughs> it's it's just so interesting how much history is there. And, and really just the, the idea that people from, from this background sometimes are told to go back to where they're from and really people missing the context of, of so many people from, you know, indigenous backgrounds having been here all along and these borders that we've created over the years that, you know, have just been done via documents, but really don't have as much meaning in, in people's lives. And so it's like framing an identity around something that was constructed versus your actual history. Yeah, it's kind of funny, and like sometimes I'll I'll say this tenth generation Tejana thing almost tongue in cheek because I think uh, one of the one of the reasons is because if you've ever been to kind of a conference in Texas or something, a lot of the times these um, you know white people, <laughs> European descended people, will get up and they'll be really proud that they're third or fourth generation Texans and. Um, Sometimes it just kind of makes me snicker a little because <laughs> like, the way they say it is that like they have a right to be here and maybe other people don't, you know, and that's certainly not my intention um, in pointing out that I'm 10th generation Tejana, but it's more to just show like there have been people here for a long time who have been doing all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a way to like get people to think outside the box a little bit about um, ownership and who deserves to be here and who doesn't. Um, and I don't think that... Uh, my, I don't believe that anybody deserves to be here over anybody else um, necessarily. I think, uh, I think you know, we all have to learn how to live together and cooperate. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's the dream. So, on the news a lot, we're hearing about um, border towns from the perspective of our p politicians in power about how there are these like dangerous difficult places but then i hear the leaders of these communities and they have the complete opposite perspective and they talk about the strength of their community now safe it all is so i'm kind of curious about your perspective on the border and living um near the border wall and what what that's like for you and how you see the current um, political climate around it yeah um <laughs> As you were asking that question, I was just thinking there about so many different things, right? Because it's a really loaded question. There's so much yeah. um, history behind, like, what's gotten us to this point to, today, you know, and, and the way uh, the U.S. has treated uh, Central and South American countries, and the different things that we've done um, down there, and how that influences the border region. Um, I remember being, like, 17, 16, maybe, and I, I got into this cool like leadership program when I was in high school where I got to go to Washington DC for like a week or something and learn about how the government worked. And um, I remember being really surprised. We were walking around uh, someplace in DC and just like seeing border patrol agents up there, which were commonplace down in the Laredo area. Um, but I just like sorta didn't expect to see them there. And it dawned on me that there were people in Washington, D.C., making rules about the South Texas border who had absolutely no connection to us and didn't really know who we were. And that was the first time that that ever really occurred to me. And um, I think what 
a lot of people who haven't lived on the border don't know is that there's a lot of um, multiculturalism and um, sort of like cross-border, not just commerce, but family. Like people um, have family members that are born both in on the Mexican side and the U.S. side. And we're, go we're constantly going across back, back and forth to see each other. And it's just living across the border is who we are. It's like, it's a part of daily life. And there's not um, as much division um, as you hear about on the media. And, and so it's really scary when the president of the United States can stand up and kind of say that like all of these people are rapists and drug dealers and paint us all with a broad brush in ways that are absolutely not true. And, um, you know, it's, it's a scary time when the leader of our country is, is saying things like that because it also, um, you know, implicates Americans who are of, you know, Hispanic, Latino, Mexican ethnicity. Um, and, uh, and so <laughs> it's just, it's really scary uh, to kind of hear those things. But there's a, I, I guess I do want to bring it back around to some of the environmental perspectives around this. Um, there's a lot of different kind of like issues surrounding the environment and, and the, this whole border wall concept. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that if you put a wall on, or on one side or another of a river, you're going to have a lot of ecological damages, whether it's because animals can't cross or access the river in ways that they're used to being able to do, um, that's going to affect the ecosystem but also just um, the kinds of flooding patterns that yeah. have, have existed for a long time, those will be effective. It's kind of you know, the same concept with putting up a dam, you're gonna affect the ecology right there. Um, and so there are a lot of people fighting the border wall for some of those reasons. Um, I think one of the more shocking things that I've seen come out of this whole border wall debate from environmentalists has been <laughs> the idea, the ideas that are uh, really harmful from environmentalists. Like, oh, well, if we're gonna have a wall, let's put some solar panels on it. Oh, right. I saw I saw that big study. I, I sent it to you, Leslie. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, cool that you're being innovative, but the, you're still supporting the idea. Yeah, I'm just, it's not worth anybody's time to be kind of like, I, I don't think it's worth anybody's time to be supporting such a damaging idea as a border wall. I mean, there really there's literally no purpose to the border wall and it is just gonna suck out tons of taxpayer dollars for something that has no value. Um, and it not not only does it not have no value in terms of immigration, but it also is just going to stoke fears and like serve as a, a racist symbol. Um, and so, so I have some strong feelings about the border wall, but uh, <laughs> you couldn't tell. But then one of the other things that's been happening in Laredo, um, which is kind of like that whole solar panel idea coming from environmentalists, is that the uh, Laredo City Council members were trying to sketch out a deal with some of the border wall people about how they could put some shops on top of the border wall and make it, you know, kind of like a nice friendly place where you could go shopping. Oh, God. <laughs> it just sounds absurd, right? Commercialize <laughs> like, it. Here's this really creepy wall <laughs> that serves as a symbol of racism and people are going to go shop on top of it. I don't know. I mean. That's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, this is my sort of morbid laugh, but. <laughs> It's just, uh, yeah, it's, like it's not really the onion. something. 
It, it's really something that I never thought I would be hearing. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it comes out of the onion, right? But um, I, Laredo is an interesting place because it's uh, it it just feels like it's in a state of militarization all the time. It is it is one of the safest cities in the U.S. Laredo on the hmm. U.S. side. Um, Nuevo Laredo on the Mexican side is more dangerous. Like there are some scary stories that come out of Nuevo Laredo. There is a lot of drug violence in Nuevo Laredo. Um, but in Laredo, there is a lot of border patrol. There's a lot of police force. Um, it's a really safe city, but it also is a weird city to be in because you feel like you're constantly being watched. You know, it's not like hey, you hang out in Austin and you go down the street. There's not like cops everywhere. There's not like somebody watching you all the time. But in Laredo, it definitely feels that way all the time. Um, so I think there's a level of comfort with... Um, government that goes unchecked in Laredo. Um, and I don't know if, you know, Phoebe, if your experience living in a border town has been similar. I know that like the valley, it can be different than Laredo, which is not quite the valley. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, I, th I think there are parallels to that. Uh, I did, I grew up mainly in Edinburgh, which isn't directly on the border, kind of quite like Laredo is. Um, I would say I'm sure like, uh, Brownsville and Hidalgo and some of these cities that are directly across from the border. But I think that's what's always been so unique to me about Laredo is that it's kind of its own city and it's just directly next to the border, whereas like the valley is just like a, a metro metropolitan area full of a bunch of cities where it's yeah, just like... Yeah, it's a bunch of small cities, yeah, it's a bunch of tied, small together cities tied together with McAllen and our two very large skyscrapers. Um, <laughs> and just... Uh, and, and so it's, it's different. But, you know, I think at the end of the day the, the the same idea applies where it's like this cross-cultural um there there's a lot of people who have been there for generations and generations and then there are people who are immigrants um then there are people like me who are like you know first slash second generation immigrant and that like my mom um you know immigrated to the u.s went from elementary to high school and then moved back went to college in mexico had me i lived there for eight years and so it was you know we ourselves within my family uh kind of had our own kind of you know she grew up with pop culture that was from the United States in like 80s you know and and so and I think that that's one thing that um, is just really important to reiterate is that people who grew up in the border like you can have both like I grew up with the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon and all of these things that the rest of like just as American exactly as any other American. Um, but you know at the same time yeah I also grew up listening to you know uh, Norteño or wh whatever you know you have that that same um, you have that intersection and so, and that's okay. And, and people just, you know, this, all this talk about assimilation, it's like, you can have a lot of cultures at once and that be a beautiful part of your identity. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're going to take away from whatever the heart of, um, some people think American culture is. So what led you to a career that's both heavily scientific and heavily embedded in activism? Sure. Um, I feel like most of my career has been uh, pretty scientific, but for advocacy organizations, I mean, 
It's kind of funny, right? Because there's different kinds of advocacy. Um, you know, some groups do a lot of direct action where they're like really rallying, they're tying themselves to trees. That's not the <laughs> yeah. kind of advocacy that I've done. <laughs> um, the advocacy that I've done has been really with like grass tops policy groups. And so when we say grass tops, we're talking about kind of like uh, going and talking to elected officials. Mm, uh, I've never heard that term. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> the other side, right. there's like yeah. grassroots where you're really like working right. with people on the ground and communities. And then there's grass tops where you're kind of like going to agencies and you're going to legislators and you're really talking to the people who are in charge of the rules. And so I uh, just had a, a little win with one of the cases that I've been working on recently with a public utility commission out in New Jersey um, I so some of the work that I started doing with Environmental Defense Fund about seven years ago was related to methane emissions from natural gas pipelines in cities. Um, so these are the distribution lines that take gas to your house. And so um, EDF formed this partnership with uh, some technology providers that have these really sensitive methane sensors. And then um, Colorado State University researchers and Google Earth Outreach and they put these sensitive methane sensors onto Google Street View cars and um, would drive the routes of natural gas pipelines in cities. And they were able to detect natural gas leaks from that data. So natural gas is made of methane, which is, I think, I think now they're saying it's 87 times more potent than carbon dioxide on a 20-year time frame. Yeah, and so it's really potent greenhouse gas, and so we want to capture as much of it as possible that might be leaking from oil and gas systems. And so, um, so this technology allows us to um, detect generally more natural gas leaks than have been able to be detected from traditional technologies. Um, most of the time, thousands more leaks are found using this sensitive technology. Um, and then the data can be um, analyzed an algorithm to estimate how fast the gas is leaking uh, from each individual leak. And so this information is really cool because it allows pipeline companies to um, repair or replace the leakiest pipelines first, which sounds really common sense. <laughs> like you would really, of course, you would want to be able to get the leakiest ones first, but. Uh, they just haven't had the, this resolution of data before and they haven't had the leak flow rate information before. And so now we have technology that can do this. So what a lot of the work that I've been doing as a consultant for Environmental Defense Fund now um, has been uh, serving as an expert witness in some of these utility cases uh, where the utility um, would need, you know, for the commission to approve funding for them to purchase and use the technology. Um, and so we're kind of explaining what the technology does and um, how it can be beneficial both to um, ratepayers and to the environment. And so, so it kind of like saves people money, helps the environment. It's kind of fun. Right. But yeah. uh, so that was one of my recent wins and like, it, it's kind of fun. Yeah. I really, I really like my work because I get to get really geeky and talk about data and science and how technology works. <laughs> but then at the end of the day, I'm sort of also helping to design what a policy would look like and um, you know what some of maybe the reporting requirements could be for for some of these um, utilities so it's kind of neat yeah just merging yeah. science and policy <laughs> but that so that's most of the advocacy that I've done um, there's I mean there's a lot of other projects that I've worked on uh, both at Environmental Defense Fund um, at Spear where I was working before I started consulting um, 
I think one of the other projects that I worked on with EDF that was a little more advocacy related um, was Neighbors of Oil and Gas. Um, and so we, we had talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, so this was a, a little environmental justice small grant that I got from the EDF Diversity Committee. And um, I think it was a $4,000 grant and we found another person in the community to match the grant. And so it, so it was a pretty small budget, but we, uh, we developed a series of bilingual workshops in South Texas in areas that were predominantly rural and Spanish speaking. And we, um, we just taught people which agencies they would need to contact if they wanted to report some kind of incident that was related to oil and gas development. So Texas has this really complex regulatory framework where the same, there, there's different agencies that you'd call depending on what the issue was, if it was air quality, if it was water quality related, um, if it was related to the amount of water that was lost, um, if it was related to a habitat as opposed to, you know, one of those other mediums being affected. And so um, sometimes people in the community would make phone calls because they were concerned about a flare and they would end up with the wrong agency and didn't really know what to do next. And so we wanted people to have information um, at their fingertips that would help them to get the right person on the phone right away. Yeah, I think that goes back to uh, a lot of what we've been talking about. I kind of briefly mentioned that uh, Virginia is in, is on the new Leaders Council board for Austin, is about to um, be on the uh, Rio Grande Valley slash Fronteras uh, slash uh, South Texas chapter. And we can get into that a little later. But um, I think one of the biggest takeaways um, now that I've kind of, you know, been part of this um, activism community um, with you all is that understanding the steps to take to engage with our government is really, really, really difficult. Um, just something like this, where it's like you see a problem that's affecting your physical environment and potentially your health, and people don't know where to go for help. So I, th I think you mentioned that the communities that you worked with, you also worked in, in translating that as well into some Spanish education, right? Yeah, so the presentations that we would give in South Texas, we had translated into Spanish and we had somebody who would give the, the Spanish version of the presentation. Um, and that was really important just because I think a lot of the communities in South Texas are, the households are predominantly Spanish-speaking households. Um, people speak English, but it's not their first language. And so um, the level of comfort, especially when you're talking about stuff that's like regulatory in nature or like scientific in nature, might be a little easier if they have Spanish language information. And so some of the agencies in Texas provide Spanish language information about how to report incidents, but not all of them. And so that's a problem. Um, it would be great if, if there was some kind of rule that required all the agencies to provide Spanish language information about reporting incidents, you know, no matter what it was. Um, because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is Texas is a multicultural state, it's a multilingual state. One of the things I think a lot of people don't know is the third most spoken language in Texas is Vietnamese. Hmm. Like we don't, we never hear about that, right? Yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> like, yeah, I heard about that yeah. a few years ago, and I was like, oh wow, like, yeah, there's a whole group of people who I like would never know how to communicate with, you know? Right. I mean, maybe someday, I hope, but yeah, but you know, it's like we think about English and Spanish a lot. Um, probably not as enough, we probably don't think about Spanish enough, but there's also a lot of other languages mm -hmm. spoken in Texas that, um, you know, people don't have the resources they need. Right. Yeah. 
That's very true. And yeah, once again, I, I didn't know that. So thank you for that. Um, so in following up with this uh, project that you did, did you were you able to get any data of like whether people were um, positively affected by this education or, you know, how any any changes occurred? So we did it two years in a row and we had people fill out a survey before they went into the presentations. And the survey asked people if they had internet access, because we posted all this information on the internet. We were mm-hmm. like, hmm, are people like, mm-hmm. do they have 24-hour access to the internet? I think about a quarter of people didn't. Wow. Yeah, in these rural areas. Um, and I'm, I'm back in Webb County, like rural Webb County right now. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I live. And so <laughs> there's definitely <laughs> issues with connectivity back yeah. out there. It's been kind of a trip getting internet access regularly out at the ranch. Um, and... Uh, one of the other questions we asked, we asked just some like sort of quiz questions, like, do you know which agency to report water contamination incidents to? Do you know which agency to pr- report air quality incidents to? Um, and those two questions were answered correctly more often in the second year that we did it. So I like to think that we had a positive impact. <laughs> I like to think that people were circulating our resources from the first year and that like word was kind of getting around. So. You know, it's, it's hard to tell because we didn't do, necess- you know, maybe didn't do like the most scientific study, but we had more than, I think we had about 70 samples on each of those years, at least 70. So, you know, a normal distribution, you'd be, you'd need at least 30 samples. <laughs> so we had twice that. <laughs> let's, get, let's get into some stats here. All right. Yes, I love that. Um, you're crossing your T's there. Uh, <laughs> Um, that's awesome. That sounds like it's just such a great and wonderful experience. Anytime that you're getting to educate the community and obviously, you know, because it's, you're limited to the grant that you have. Um, but I'm sure that it's, it's made a difference. So I commend you for that. Thanks. So just to clarify, this project that we're discussing is called the Neighbors of Oil and Gas Project, and it is geographically set in an area of South Texas where oil and gas development was really heavy from 2009 to 2015 due to the Eagle Ford shale play. Um, And this area was experiencing a lot of groundwater contamination and some of the highest rates of flaring. Um, And at the same time, it also had fewer air quality monitors than any other areas of heavy drilling in Texas. Um, And then also important to note is that it's predominantly Latino communities in rural areas. Uh, And this is actually also where Virginia grew up. So we often talk about how environmental movements and these environmental nonprofits are largely white, despite it being people of color who are disproportionately being uh, most negatively affected by these environmental issues. And you kind of talked about that a little bit already, but you were you recognize this, too, and you actually work to help expand the diversity committee within EDF. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit more about kind of the things that you did and what you saw and kind of how you helped change that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I joined the EDF diversity committee in 2012. There were about 25 members, and it was coincidental that the year that I joined EDF um, and joined that committee, they were having um, a, a committee-wide retreat in the Austin office where I was working. And so I kind of just like got involved with it um, 
and then kind of realized like, oh, hey, like uh, this committee needs some help getting organized. You know, we don't really know who all the members are. We're not really like tracking this information. So I kind of like got involved with like tracking the membership. Who's on our committee? Like which departments are they in? What issues are they working on? Um, you know, just helping to kind of like organize things and keep track of the membership. And um, and then we kind of formed, we had formed like a listserv where people were just kind of emailing different news that was coming across their, you know, vision about um, diversity in the environment or environmental justice issues. And, and we started to get like a decent amount of chatter. And then we started like getting the word out about the listserv because it, it became this really fun educational tool where people could sort of like passively learn about what some of these concepts were uh, re related to diversity in the environment and environmental justice because there's a whole lingo behind it and there's a lot of jargon behind it and it's it's hard to really understand why there's um, why there's why there are disparities first of all in health outcomes that differ by race and class and then also um, you know why there are disparities in hiring practices at big green groups and so we just kind of started to circulate information about that and um, become more educated ourselves. And um, over the course of my time at EDF, let's see, I left in 2017, um, we grew that diversity committee from 25 people to, I think, 130. Wow. <laughs> it was a huge growth. And so a lot of people looked at that and they were like, eh, but are those people really participating? You know, that was the, the big question, but we, they were. <laughs> That was the fun thing. So we uh, we formed several different committees to work on different projects. And so one of the committees that was already existing was the, the grants program. And so um, and the name changed a little bit over the years. I think when I left, it was the Environmental Justice Grants Program. Um, and then we also had formed a recruitment and retention committee. And so we looked up some different HR practices and like ways that we could better diversify the EDF staff. Um, so that was, a, that was a really fun thing, thing to be a part of. Uh, we created a committee to draft a messaging guide just to improve the language that we use when we talk about communities of color and environmental justice communities, which can be more broad than just communities of color, of course. Um, and to also just find out, like, you know, how do people need to be communicated to to receive these messages, you know? And so, uh, so that was one cool project. Um, there were a few other committees that uh, were just doing really cool, innovative things, and we tracked like participation. And so we know that at least half of the members on that diversity committee, about 70 or 80, were involved and in actively participating on committees. And so it was, it was really kind of a cool thing that was going on at EDF. There was a lot of interest. Like People really care about diversifying the movement. I think they know that it's important. Um, they, I think big green groups sometimes lack the funding to work on those issues, and they, they don't always know how to talk to funders about anti-racism. Mm -hmm. I think it's like it's it, it's hard for people to say the R word, <laughs> even though yeah, even it though it's like, yeah, it makes people so uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's like, well, it, racism makes people uncomfortable. So can we? Why don't we talk about anti-racism? You know. And so uh, so yeah, it's it's um it's a challenging thing to like figure out how to make big green groups um, more diverse, but there are lots of tools out there. There's a ton of work being done. I think y'all have talked about Green 2.0 before. Mm -hmm. That organization um, has done a lot of work um, just kind of putting out some of the statistics that yeah. big green group types need to hear to know mm -hmm. that they need to work on these issues. I mean, 
I think at the end of the day, some of the boards of big green groups really just want to put a number behind it and they want to know like what the stats are. Right. right. Those kinds of things help them make decisions, you know? Yeah. It, it can be really frustrating, I think, for people of color who just like see things happening plain as day and it's like, why do you need me to put a number behind it? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, I know, because everybody, you know, and if it's scientists, you you tend to be like, yeah. that's anecdotal evidence oh, versus yeah. like quantitative <laughs> evidence. But when you're living it, it's... Yeah, when you live through the microaggressions, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which I guess we shouldn't call micro, but yeah. Oh yeah, as, as yeah, we we recently yeah we can we can kind of discuss that. So microaggression, um, you know that that's a term that I feel like has become more popular, and it's like somebody can tell you, uh, hey, I don't know, just like a tiny comment that's about race or gender that's like inappropriate, but it's not like outwardly. So it's it's hard to explain, and it really. And so recently we were in a in a workshop, and I said something about like, well, what if I hear microaggressions, and um, our trainer was. It's just like, no, there's no such thing. It's just like an aggression and we should just address it for what it is because if it's making you feel bad, then it's an aggression. Um, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of feel like that term was kind of made to make a certain group uh, feel more comfortable. <laughs> like, I'm only doing a microaggression towards you. Like, it's not, I don't mean it. Um, anyway, sorry, tangent over. Well, I mean, it's, it's valid. I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things. I was thinking about it earlier today because, like, one of the things that has happened to me in my career was I experienced what at the time I would call a microaggression where it, it was like somebody said something to me and the way I took it was as an aggression, but I could see where if I explained it to somebody else, they might find a way to objectively say that mm -hmm. the person didn't mean it that way. Right, And right. that's the tricky thing with microaggressions, right. quote-unquote, where it's hard to objectively assess it when you were the person feeling it in an aggressive way. So. Yeah, I think like a good example, I just thought of one because I was like, why can't I think? Like, I think me as like, you know, I am a brown Latina and people will be like, oh, well, you'll get along with this person <laughs> or you'll be able to connect with them or, oh, you might be able to do better in that community, um, you know, and it's like. Yeah, but something about the assumption that like Latinos can only get along with Latinos or just like or like in Disney where, you know, they'll or like in TV shows where they'll like link the two, the two like people of color will like fall in love. I mean, that was like very 90s, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's just, you know, it, it's just these little tiny things that you you kind of put people in a box um, and it's not right. So, <laughs> no, it is not. But yeah, from that Green 2.0 group, just to kind of go back to that, um, I do have some statistics freshly in my head Ooh, because nice. of my presentation. But um, that was like they they surveyed the top 40 or 40 prominent environmental nonprofit organizations, and uh, only 22% of the full time staff was people of color. Um, and then we saw like a huge uh, leadership gap on women uh, at the very top. So 64% of full time staff were women, um, but then only 40% uh, were on, on boards. And, and so that percentage kind of shrinks as you get to the top. So there's a, a leadership gap. Um, so it's good that these statistics are being told because it's like these things that, yeah, once you're in the field enough, you're like, I'm seeing this, I know it's true, um, but you just need the numbers to back it up. Yeah, and I think the one thing that I'll add to your stat on people of color and the percentage of staffs that they make up of um, big green groups is that um, the other thing that Green 2.0 found was not only that there, there's a disproportionality between the number of people 
mm-hmm. who exist in the general population right. for people of color and the right. number of people who are hired by big green groups, but that there are significantly more people of color who have the degrees that big green groups would normally hire from. Mm-hmm. Like, so the, mm-hmm. the talent is there. The talent oh, okay. that big green groups are looking for is there, does exist in the form of people of color, but they're not getting hired by big green groups. Wow. And, it, and that's like the weird part. Um, it's the sad part. It's mm-hmm. the part where we're kind of like, well, are you aggressively racist or do you just not know that you're mm-hmm. racist? <laughs> you know? And so, uh, and so I think there's a lot of, um, unconscious bias or just bias, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, I think there's a lot that can be done just by teaching people about bias and how to avoid it in the hiring process. Um, I think that's part of it, but I think there's also, um, I think people need some cultural competency training. They need to learn about different cultures and learn how um, different cultures can interact differently in the workplace and still be considered people with valid opinions and ideas and, you know, skills to contribute. I mean, this is big in Silicon Valley. It's like, well, the talent's just not there. We just don't see it in the pipeline. Like, it's like, that's not, yeah, no. I mean, you know, just to talk, you referenced your presentation. So Phoebe and I are in this group called New Leaders Council. She gave her capstone presentation yesterday. And uh, and the group that we're in, New Leaders Council Austin, is majority women of color. And, um, and so, and it's all these incredible, like, high-achieving people <laughs> who yeah. have just done some of the most amazing things. And so that's an experience, being a part of New Leaders Council Austin is, is an experience that's taught me, like, the talent is there. Yeah. Like, you have to know how to talk to people. Right. You, know, you have to come to people to recruit. Mm-hmm. You can't just expect people to come to you. Right. And, um, you know, I, we have to stop assuming that the, the right person for the job isn't a person of color, you know. I want to um, put a plug in that it's an article I sent you, Phoebe but it's entitled Confronting Racism is Not About the Needs and Feelings of White People. And it's a really important article. So if you're someone out there listening that is aware of that and you're trying to figure out how to decenter yourself from the movement and how to really show up for people of color and other marginalized groups, I highly recommend it. And I'll put it in the meeting notes or the the meeting notes, the podcast notes. Yeah, that article is, is good. It was yeah. I think the the author um, kind of does these anti racism trainings for a living, and anyway, the the stuff the the things that people tell her and that she experiences, and and that's yeah. I mean, I feel like the title is like on point where it's like so many people make it about themselves in these in these trainings. Right. So let's get into uh, what you're working on now. I mean, you, you briefly mentioned that you had this um, this recent victory in New Jersey. Um, so, yeah, talk to us about your firm. What is it called? What are you <laughs> up to? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Give us so, a yeah, I've been consulting for EDF primarily as an independent consultant, but I finally decided to make myself <laughs> real and form mm-hmm. uh, an LLC. So yeah. it's official. I'm a, you know, I have my own consulting firm. It's Yay. called VP Environmental LLC. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As of now, the website is not up, <laughs> but it will be soon. Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited to kind of be starting my own business and being like an entrepreneur, which yes. is not <laughs> something I ever thought I would be. But uh, 
Yeah, I think um, it's it's an exciting new thing to do. Um, I really like having a little more flexibility to decide what it is that I want to work on and um, who I want to work with. And um, so far, I have a lot of great leads. I have a, a couple of clients clients right now that I've been working with for several months, but um, I have a lot of other folks who are interested. And so um, I had thought I was going to kind of be in this weird space where I was going to have to be like cold calling a lot of people that I didn't know. But it turns out I have pretty good networking skills <laughs> and, uh, and I'm able to kind of just uh, talk to people that I already know and uh, hopefully pursue some of those those folks as clients. Um, and so, yeah, it's essentially environmental science and policy consulting, uh, you know, just building on the skills that I've been developing for years, which is data analysis and policy development. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping to continue to work on oil and gas issues, but um, also you know, spend a little more time working on electricity, which is something that I've only started to get involved with over the past year and a half or so. And, uh, you know, would like to work on renewables issues. Um, and of course, you know, climate, that's, that's my main thing is working on climate change and, um, and definitely touching on environmental justice issues as well, um, to the extent possible. I think, um, it can, can be hard to find folks who want to work on environmental justice issues again because of what we we're talking about earlier people are afraid to talk about the r word racism you know but um but i'm hoping to to find folks who aren't scared of that and who want to like really deal with the the disparities that we see um it's important to me uh being a latina from the border um we were talking about this the other day um I was trying to tell you the stat, but I got it wrong. <laughs> let's, see, let's see if I can get it right. So, um, and this one's really sad to me. It's uh, Latino children are twice as likely to die from asthma as non-Latino whites. Um, and it's because we're more likely to live close to pollution sources like power plants um, that are fossil fuel burning power plants. And so uh, these kinds of racial disparities and the fact that your race can predict your likelihood to die from a respiratory illness is a really, it's a huge problem. And, you know, if people like us don't sit down and try to solve these problems, they're, they're just not going to go away. And so, uh, so we have to talk about racism. We have to talk about these racial health disparities. And, um, yeah, I'm hoping to be able to do more work, um, you know, in my home community and elsewhere where people are experiencing statistics like these. Yeah. I actually read something uh, recently about indoor air quality and that also um, being linked to if you um, are lower income, the type of building that you live in is going to have more problems and more likely to have mold and all of these issues that can lead to like exacerbate the already like prominent health issues that are in communities like that. And I was like, man, I hadn't even thought about that. That's like <laughs> even more sad. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of cool stuff happening in the energy efficiency mm -hmm. arena right now around indoor air quality mm -hmm. and so um there is a group uh, that's in the midwest if i'll remember their name later but they uh they have leveraged public health funding to do energy efficiency retrofits in people's homes which awesome. not only sort of indirectly reduces mm -hmm. emissions from power plants but also is directly right, benefiting right. indoor air quality in these homes and so they're using funding coming from hospitals coming from insurance companies to you know up people's indoor environments so that's that's some pretty neat stuff that's happening yeah no I'm really glad that somebody was able to like 
leverage that intersection successfully for funding. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to see it expanded throughout the U.S. Um, I don't, there, I don't think there's any kind of a national model to do that, but it's happening on right. a local level in certain places. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so taking into account just the journey that you've been on, and you just said, you know, it turns out I'm a good networker. Uh, if somebody was trying to start their own kind of consulting firm, like what advice do you have for them? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you have to uh, talk to people face to face, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just like start now and um, start uh, going to networking events when you can. Um, and treat most opportunities as a networking opportunities, like most, most interactions that you have, um, you want to be prepared. Maybe you want to have your business cards ready, but, um, you also want to be able to explain what you do in a couple of sentences so that someone can pick up on that, you know? And so, uh, you know, you don't have to have a, an elevator pitch that sounds unnatural, <laughs> but, you know, it'd be able to say what your title is and what that means. I'm an environmental mm -hmm. science and policy consultant, which means that I do data analysis and I help develop rules. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, be able to sum it up, you know. And, uh, and you know, think not only about what other people can do for you, but also um, what interests you about what they're working on. Not just, oh, what can we work on together, but just be interested in people. Be curious about what other people are doing. I kind of, I always think about people that I meet in terms of like, well, we might not be doing anything directly related to one another right now, but maybe in the future someday I'll be like, oh, I'm really into printers. Like, <laughs> what is this person doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah. Being open-minded. Yeah. I think you have to stay open-minded about all the contacts you make. Um and just, uh, yeah, like, I, I think just enjoy being around other people, which, you know, maybe is easy to say for somebody who's a little bit extroverted. <laughs> but mm -hmm. but I, I don't think I was always extroverted. I do think mm -hmm. it was something that uh, that I had to work on and right. you know, I had to, like, break through uh, shyness that mm -hmm. I had when I was younger and um, just kind of keep practicing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I think people tend to be a little insecure maybe when they're younger or like tend to focus on that and I think um, I think it's a good practice to just focus on the positive and focus on good interactions that you have with people yeah, yeah. that's good advice <laughs> So Virginia, tell me a little bit about the city of San Antonio climate action and adaption plan yeah, the, uh, the city's climate action and adaptation plan is called SA Climate Ready. And um, it was an 18-month process that the city put together um, to develop this climate action and adaptation plan for the first time. Um, and so there was, after the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, um, there were a lot of mayors across the country that signed on to this pledge to go ahead and follow through with the Paris Climate Accord. And so this was a part of that um, and so Mayor Ron Nirenberg had signed on to that pledge. Um, there was a, just a ton of support for that. Um, Councilwoman Ana Sandoval was also really important in that effort, um, pushing for a plan. And so they put together a set of, I think, five technical working groups and a steering committee. Um, and I got to be a part of the Energy and Buildings Technical Working Group. Nice. So I got to participate for about 12 months, helping to build out some of 
some of the measures that would be considered in the plan and uh, helping to outline some of the, the key priorities for that plan along with the other people in the working group. Um, I can't remember how many people were on that working group exactly, maybe around 20. So it was a fairly, it was a fairly large working yeah. group, a lot of just experts in the room, um, community members and some folks from big green groups, some folks from you know solar industry and, and just um, other kinds of stakeholders that wanted to have a say in what got into yeah. the plan, but also had the expertise and understanding about climate change to be able to to say what was important and what was going to not only reduce the most greenhouse gases, but what was going to provide the, the greatest benefit for the community. Um, and so I think one of the things that was important about the plan that we put together is that everybody really did have equity on their mind. We had a lot of conversations about it. Um, you know, I do think that there is a need for a lot more education among environmental, the environmental community about what equity really means and, and how to achieve it. But I do think that it was important to everyone. And, um, and so in that vein, a lot of the things that ended up in the plan, we were constantly thinking about, okay, how do we find out how we're going to get the most emissions reductions for the dollar spent and how is this going to be cost effective and how can we tackle these cost effective um, emissions reductions first and so people really do want it to be an economic plan they want it to be good for low-income people they want it to be good for people of color they want it to be good for any kind of vulnerable group and so uh so that that commitment was there and i think that's really important um, um so the plan right now uh has not been voted on by city council and what's happening right now is San Antonio has yet to complete voting on their mayor. And so, so it, there's a runoff between um, the oh. incumbent mayor and, mm -hmm. and an opposing uh, candidate. And so uh, that election is happening on June 8th. I'm not sure when this episode will air. Maybe it will have already happened. Uh, and so the incumbent mayor, uh, Ron Nuremberg, does want the plan to, to pass. A city council when it when it comes up for a vote, um, and his opposition has proposed a uh, tree planting instead of the climate <laughs> change oh plan. My oh goodness my goodness gracious! Yeah, oh <laughs> so, yeah. So um, <laughs> I think you know if we're just talking about the environment, I think uh, we are kind of hoping that Ron Nuremberg takes it away um, on June eighth. So. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. But yeah. You know, but it, it's pretty cool that San, San, the process that San Antonio went through to form this plan um, and the level of involvement that the community had. Um, Dallas is getting ready to do their climate plan pretty soon. I have not really seen yet whether they're going to have the same kind of community involvement that San Antonio has. They might not. And so San Antonio's plan, the process that was used to develop it, I think is really is really great. And it's something that I would like to see in most cities that are putting together these plans where like the community really does help to write it. Um, and I think some folks might disagree with me and say that like they didn't feel that it was, you know, involved involving enough of the community. Um, and I think there are definitely different ways that the city could have different methods the city could have used to involve people that could have been improved upon. But, um, but I think it, it's important that cities do try to engage the community as much as possible when they put together these plans because these plans are ultimately designed to change the way we get to work, the way we, you know, get to school at the end of the day, how much these things cost, and the community definitely um, has to have a say in it.
Um, so thank you so much for, for being here and giving us a, a good uh, piece of just yourself and, and you know, who you are as a, as a professional and a, as a person. Um, so we like to close off our episodes with a joy because sometimes it really feels like the going is really tough um, when it comes to climate and when we see reports like the 1.5 degrees IPCC report and some of these things that are just like, it's over. Um, and so we like to... <laughs> To remain optimistic and just think about something um, that gives you joy or something that you're you're fighting for. So can you give us an example of something that's keeping you positive right now? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I didn't get to explain this earlier, um, but I'm living back on the family ranch right now. Um, and so this this is this ranch has been in my family for four generations. And uh, I moved back in the fall because my dad got sick and I needed to take care of him. Sadly, he passed away in December. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, but it has been a joy to be back at that place and and living there and just getting to enjoy being surrounded by nature. And um, I was kind of apprehensive about moving down there, not only because I was changing my entire life to do it, <laughs> but also because it can get it can be really swelteringly hot down in South mm -hmm. Texas. <laughs> and, um, I was kind of scared of that. Um, it, but the ranch is a special place. Um, it's, it's beauty is something that is acquired. I think that the average person who's used to seeing places with mountains or Yosemite or, uh, places that are very wet, uh, might have a hard time enjoying it, but, uh, it's a, it's a semi-arid desert. It's covered in, um, brush like mesquite trees and prickly pear cactus. The soil is kind of a, a sandy dusty thing in some places and then <laughs> can be like hard packed clay in other places. Um, it's, it's not particularly rich soil. Um, but, uh, the landscape itself can be quite pretty. Sometimes the mesquite trees can be very beautiful. Um, and it's a really special place ecologically because it's a migratory corridor for birds. And a lot of the birds that we get there, this, this part of, of South Texas is the northernmost point of their range. So they're primarily from Central and South America, but they'll come all the way up to Webb County, Texas, <laughs> and they'll go no further north. So if you want to see these birds and you don't want to travel internationally, uh, you can see them in South Texas. And so it's, wow. it's a really kind of like fun thing uh, that I didn't learn until I was an adult. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, it's, it's amazing because I grew up being inspired by the birds and really enjoying watching them fly around and and now I'm just appreciating them in a whole new way and getting to know them a little bit better and who's who and um, the different things that they do and uh, yeah just being inspired by them in a different way so that's my joy these days yeah. okay I was really surprised I drove uh, from Texas to California and I drove through that part of Texas and uh, New Mexico and Arizona and I hadn't really been in a desert before, I guess, or that kind of a, a biome. And I was just blown away by how beautiful it was. So I can only imagine how peaceful and, and precious that must be. So it, that's it's awesome. It's very precious. I bet that you drove through West Texas, though, no? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, saw the, <laughs> I saw the border wall. It was, it was, it was it's, something. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so West Texas is different even than South Texas, where Webb County is. So like, 
a lot of people forget that South Texas exists. <laughs> it's like south of San Antonio, you know, because um, like the kind of like West Texas, El Paso, Big Bend landscapes that you see out there are more, I would consider more high desert. I'm not sure what the ecosystem term technically mm -hmm. is, but like the semi-arid desert in South Texas is different than that. It's more forested. It's just these kind of trees that are a little shorter. They're like mesquite trees, you know. Mm -hmm. They don't they don't get to be these big conifers or anything or big broadleaf trees. But uh, it's like it's not just like uh, kind of like dusty all over the place. <laughs> like when you get to to West Texas, it's kind of like a barren landscape. So it's a little different in South Texas. But um, and may, so maybe it's like slightly wetter, but we are prone to drought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think there's something to say for just like, and I feel this when I go home, I feel like kind of time slows down a little bit, um, where you feel like you can really embrace like the minute by minute more like, I don't know, I, I just feel like it, and, and this happens, like, I think anytime you kind of escape um, to to a place that's more desolate, but it just feels like you can relax for the first, I don't know. I feel like a lot of times I'm like on edge and I'm like always waiting for the next thing that I need to be doing. Um, and so I feel like in an environment like that, maybe you get to just like, yeah, I do kind of, I, it doesn't, but it, but I make myself, um, yeah. I think it's probably our personalities <laughs> that make us on edge all the time. I, I'm kind of a type A, maybe you yeah. are too. Um, and so I do tend to fill my days with too many activities and, uh, too many responsibilities, but, um, it being at the ranch, has, it has made me slow down a little and just be like, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm at the ranch. I should sit outside and enjoy the breeze. Right, you know? right. And so, uh, and, you know, kind of savor it a little bit more. And so, like, I I was telling you that I was having connectivity issues with the internet and uh, finally have kind of just, like, thrown up my hands with it. I, I work out of a co-working space in town, like, in Laredo, and the ranch is about 30 miles away. So I, like, I have decided not to even have internet at the ranch. <laughs> so I'm just like, I have my cell phone. If I really need to be connected some way, like I can use my cell phone. But um, but I basically just like work in town, use the internet there, and then like kind of am a little less plugged in when I'm at the ranch, which I think is kind of a nice way to live life. Um, just a little like, more off the grid. Yeah, and it, it sort of makes me realize that I need to just go outside and like enjoy the birds and the trees and all that stuff. Yeah. Wonderful. So Phoebe, what's what's your joy? Um, well, since we've been kind of giving a shout out to uh, New Leaders Council, I'll go ahead and, and talk about that. Um, so we actually just had the uh, graduation ceremony and finished my six-month fellowship with the Austin chapter of the New Leaders Council. Um, and, and, and my joy was really just sitting through and getting to see everybody's presentations and capstones. Like... I, we have a really good, I think, diverse group as far as like what everybody's interests are. And so you had people coming from like a law background or coming from an activist background. And, and so much of it did center around like, how can we make politics more accessible for people? I feel like that was like a, a central theme. Um, but then also thinking about like, how do I incorporate race into my conversations with like the day-to-day -day people that I see in my profession? Or how can I fight so that um, families, right? Like parental leave was, uh, or maternal and parental leave was was one of the conversations. And just really kind of seeing this like um, 
vast set of, of people working on like all of these different pieces that are creating um, or are looking to create a more progressive future. Um, and I was just like, man, like I'm in a good place sitting here being able to see everybody talking about these things because I know um, that somebody's working on these issues. Like all of these like little, you know, things that are, uh, that are, are, you know, how, whether it's health or whether it's like car retirement systems work, like somebody is out there acknowledging these problems and working for them. And they're either looking to uh, planning on, on passing bills or they're looking to uh, engage their community or go to conferences or write books or, you know, publish things. And so there's a lot going on. Um, and I think uh, just getting to see that, it gives me hope. Um, so that that's my joy is just kind of, you know, getting to, and then knowing also that that's going to the border where there's a chapter being started. Yeah. That's kind of and running from, from yeah. yeah. From the Valley to Laredo and, and knowing that there's going to be a group of people there that are mobilized that are doing the same exact type of work, but are going to be brought together. Cause I think that's a huge part of it. It's like, everybody's kind of doing their own little niche and fighting their own battles and then like coming together and being like, Oh, I'm not the only one that's like, you know, and, and so I'm really excited to just, create that network and yeah awesome <laughs> what about you Leslie uh, I guess mine's kind of similar to, to Virginia's that it's kind of a it's kind of sad but it's also uh, a blessing um, I don't know if everyone's I feel like I am because being from New Orleans this woman's super incredible but Leah Chase uh, passed away I think it was yesterday or the day before um, the good news is, you know, she was 96 years old and she had this beautiful, rich life and she's super important to New Orleans, not only because she owned and ran one of the most quintessential New Orleans restaurants, Dookie Chase in New Orleans, but she, uh, she kind of created a fine dining restaurant for the black community in New Orleans. And this is coming from the Jim Crow era where, white people and black people couldn't exist in the same public spaces and they only had kind of like sandwich shops and um, cheap places to eat for for black people and she actually transitioned her husband's family's kind of sandwich shop business into a fine dining establishment for for her community and because of that it was the only place like that in new orleans it became a meeting ground for a lot of the freedom fighters and a lot of the important people in the community who were <laughs> literally fighting for the existence and the rights of their their community and they had this safe space with delicious food and this wonderful family that was running this restaurant and welcomed them she served presidents uh it's like a funny story where she she served obama and he was about to put some hot sauce in his gumbo that she made and she stopped him and she's just like you are not about to put hot sauce in my gumbo <laughs> <laughs> she's just she's just this incredible woman and i'm so thankful for for her life and all of the gifts she gave to the city and how she helped provide that safe space for people on that meeting ground and just spending some time appreciating that for a moment and listening to other people especially people um from the black community of new orleans that are talking about it and talking about her and what she meant to to them and their family and it's it's pretty beautiful so that's my joy that's nice yeah, thank you. Um, I didn't know um, about her, actually, so thank you. Well, 
Yeah, thank you. See, I, that's why I love doing the joy because it's like, <laughs> well, now I feel good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but thank you so much, Virginia, for joining us. Um, yeah, I feel like I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners do too. And uh, yeah, y'all, uh, rate, review, follow us on all the social medias, and we'll see y'all next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.